Well, those of you who have been with us for a while, you know we're going to be returning to the book of Acts. So I'd invite you to, to do that. Turn your device on or your hard copy of the Bible to the 22nd, 23rd chapter of the book of Acts. I want to spend a little time praying today. Uh, I've always felt that it's important as events are going around in our world for the church not to be silent on those, but to, but to be praying for those, just acknowledging the brokenness that is around us. And it's a little easier even this week as we think about the events that took place in Kenosha. And so why don't we just spend some time praying for uh, Jacob Blake, his family, as well as uh, I have the names of the other people that were not only shot but actually killed this week in Joseph Rosenbaum and Anthony Huber. I think it's, it's natural for us to, to, to try to swing to one side and say, hey, why did it take seven shots? Why would you shoot someone in the back? Or the, the other side that might say, why not just obey the police? And none of this would have happened. But I think it's, it's helpful for us to be willing to just to wade through some of the complexities here and just be willing to pray for this situation. We're just reminded again that we're in a, we're in a sinful world. And, and quite honestly, we fight sin every day ourselves, don't we? And so I'd like us to lead us in, in prayer. And, and as we think about this, yes, we want to pray for justice. We want to pray for the truth. Uh, we want to pray for love and we want to pray for our own families, our moms and dads, grandma and grandpas, to be able to lead and train our children to, to understand that every person is made in the image of God and as a result have value. So we want to keep that before us and, and let us be willing to be, be willing to get into some conversations and, and be able to, even if those are hard conversations, just to be willing to learn about this and to direct people ultimately to Christ. So would you join me, and, and let's, uh, let's pray for a city here in Wisconsin, in Kenosha. Uh, Lord, as, as we have heard about this, as we've seen about this, as we have read about this, we just have another reason to have a, a heartbreak over, over seeing how you value life, that every man, every woman is created in the images of God. We read from the Bible that there is one race and all of us can, can find our origins in Adam and Eve. And it, it makes us sad to see the conflict and the, the brokenness that is around us. Lord, as a church family, help us to be willing to, to speak love and speak truth. And, and as I mentioned in the opening, be willing to be able to have hard conversations and be willing to listen and understand that our ultimate hope is in what we celebrated in baptism today. It's a new life that is offered through Christ. And so help us to do the, 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 folk, the focus on those around us and to be able to share these truths with our children and grandchildren. To be able to hold up the hope that we have in the gospel. To know that this world Yes, is broken, but one day Jesus will return. We pray for healing there 
in Kenosha. We pray for Jim Blake, his family, as well as these others, that, that these other two that were actually killed this week, we pray healing in their family. We pray for the leaders, whether the mayor or the police chief. We pray that uh, they would be able to sort these things out and ultimately truth would be declared and, and justice would be exercised. We trust you today. We pray for you to work your plan in this situation. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me continue with you through the, this study, through the book of Acts. In recent weeks, I've tried to do a, a chapter a week, and now that we're later in this book, and Paul is no longer out sharing the gospel and planting churches, I'm actually going to press the accelerator a bit, and my hope is to get through two different chapters today. You might have observed here at the, the beginning of our service that our boys, my, my wife and I, our, our sons, have really taken to making movies in recent years. And so they've enjoyed uh, taking and learning about how a movie is made, uh, whether that's a producer, getting a director and actors, and learning about a set, learning about different costumes, the importance of editing, and, and just being able to deliver a story. And I think they've learned during this process that when they sit down and watch a movie for about two hours, years of work has gone into that. And every second of that film has a purpose in it. And as I was thinking about movies and I was thinking about life, life is like that as well. That there is not a wasted moment. It is no accident that you are here today or this afternoon or this evening. God is going to use these minutes for his good in your life. We're going to see that lived out in the life of Paul. What would seem to be some random events, we see that God is ordering them for a design. In recent weeks, we have saw Paul has been planting churches. The last few weeks, he said, I believe the Spirit of God is leading me to go to Jerusalem. And there are people that have warned him, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to get arrested and you'll be harmed. But that doesn't stop him. And last week, we saw that he actually got arrested for going there. And, and people accused him of dishonoring the law, dishonoring the temple, and even the Jewish people. And so just outside the temple is what we'll just call a police station. The chief of police, the man, the tribune, looks and he sends the officers in. And, and they save Paul's life by getting him out of a riot. And now we're going to pick up that conversation where we left off last week, uh, beginning in verse 37 of Acts chapter 21. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, that's like the jail, he said to the tribune, that's like the chief of police, may I say something to you? And he said, hey, do you know Greek? He must have said it in the Greek language. Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and then led the 4,000 men of the assassins out in the wilderness? So as this police officer is looking at Paul and he has seen all the disturbance that he has caused, he, he thinks back to an Egyptian terrorist that just prior to this had led a revolt of which there were 4,000 people. That's what it says here in verse 38 were a part of this. Now, history will tell us that there indeed was an Egyptian. 
And he led people up to the Mount of Olives. And he said, at a moment's notice, by my call, I can have all the walls of Jerusalem collapse. He had quite a following. And there was a governor named Felix, who we will hear about in the following chapters, that went out and arrested this man. But he arrested the followers, not actually this man. So as a result, this chief of police thinks, well, this must be him. But now he hears him speaking in the Greek language and he is not sure. Verse 39 says, Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Sicilia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. So now he is given an opportunity to speak to all these people who had made up a mob, a riot, just minutes before. And so now let's look at what he says. If you're following along in your outline, the first words I have here is Jesus' story. Jesus' story. The last, first verse here of chapter 22 says, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. The word defense in the Greek language is the word apologia, which just means apologetics. And when they heard he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they came even more quiet and said, So Paul is going to share his Jesus story, kind of like what you heard from Jacinda just a moment ago. And with these three outlines, the first is what, her, what my life was like before Jesus, what my life was like when I became a Christian, and then what my life is like after I became a Christian. Here's the first heading in verse 3. I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Sicilia, but brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamil, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. The first thing he says is that I am a Jew. He was accused just in the previous chapter of speaking out against the Jews. And he said, no, I'm, I'm actually one of you. He says, I was brought up in this city of Jerusalem and I was educated at the feet of a renowned scholar named Gamil. In fact, this week I, I read or heard of how Gamil had said that there was one problem that he had with this pupil named Paul. It was that he did not have enough books. Because Paul was an avid reader, a ferocious learner. And it says here, he was at the feet of Gamil, and according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, he, he revered the law of God. And then it says he was zealous for God, as all the people were that day. Verse 4 says, I persecuted this way to death binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as high priest of the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received the letters to the brothers, and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those also who were with and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. What Paul is doing here at the very opening is he is saying, I can identify with what you are doing. You are bringing me here. I did the same thing when I was in your shoes. I wondered, what is this all about? Why is there a follower of Jesus? Now let's look at verses 6 through 11 that, that detail what led to him becoming a Christian. Verse 6 says, 
As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. Now, if there's a bright light and it's around noon, would you agree with me that it is a very bright light? And I fell to the ground and heard a mess, a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Then I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And it was here where he realized that Jesus was not a myth. He did raise from the dead. Verse 9, Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand. The voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came in to Damascus. Now let us look at what his life was like after he became a Christian. Verse 12. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. He is saying to the crowd, Our God, the one that we revere, he led me to this. i just simply been obedient to him. Verse 15 says, For you will be witnesses for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. I want to just pause there and let's just go back and hit on a few different things. One, I can't help but notice that God uses people to fulfill his story. As we have worked through the book of Acts, we have noticed this pattern. Think of Acts chapter 8, where you have this Ethiopian eunuch that is going on a chariot across the countryside, and, and the book of Isaiah is on his mind. And certainly the Spirit of God could have revealed the truth, could have led him to repent of his sins and place his faith on Jesus Christ to save his soul. But instead of doing it that way, he allows Philip to come alongside and explain this truth to him. Think of Acts chapter 10, where there's this Cornelius that God has clearly been working on his heart, gives him a vision of truth, but in, instead of just giving it all to him, he says, why don't you send for a guy named Peter, and he will come to you, and he will explain this good news, this gospel to you. The same thing we see here in this passage, and as well as Acts 9, the, the story of how Paul is converted. God clearly could have just saved him and left him on his own, but he involved people like Ananias and later Barnabas. This is a great truth for us to be reminded of. We're living in a crazy world that is spinning, and there's all sorts of things that are competing for our affections and our attention but may we not lose sight of this source of joy in our life that God uses people in a story. God uses you and I when he is working in someone's life. And we get to be a part of that. We get to come alongside and, 
and to pray with them and encourage them in their relationship with Jesus. He is still doing this today. This is still his priority for your life. You might be a mother. This is your priority with your children. You might be out in in the workplace looking for people whom God is working on. It is still the privilege that you and I have, a priority to fulfill the Great Commission. A second thing I see here, and that is God expects us to follow him one step at a time. When we review this story here in Acts chapter 22, uh, I see here in verse 10, as, as Paul kind of comes to, he says, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus. Just one thing at a time, and he gets there. And then he meets Ananias, and Ananias says, what you need to do is call on God and and be baptized. One step, one item at a time. I don't know about you, but often what I think of is, God, what is your plan for me the next three, six, nine, twelve months? What's your five-year, what's your ten-year plan for me? And I even had that even this week. As I was praying about the future, I was praying, oh God, help me to understand what you want, what you want me to do. And I was reminded of two different things that I, th- I believe the Lord has put on my heart to do that I haven't even done yet. It was as if he was saying, hey, before I, before I tell you the next step, how about you just obey what I've told you to do first? And so that resulted in two phone calls. And I'm asking you today, what is the next step for you? For Jacinda, I was, well, the next step, I'm now a Christian, it is to be baptized. And maybe that's your next step. Or maybe as you think about your next step, it is, you know, there's still that person that I haven't, haven't prayed with, I haven't shared the gospel with. There's still a debt that I, that I need to pay. There's, there's still someone I need to go to and make that right. And I just encourage you, to whatever that next step for you is, to obey that. I think we see something else here, and that is to share your story. What we have here in Paul is as he is confronted with this angry mob, he's given a chance to share his story. And I believe if you are a Christian, you should have a story. And you should have a short version, an intermediate version, and a long version of it. Have you ever taken time to write out your story? You know, I will tell you this. I don't think I, and I don't think I've ever had anyone reject me when I say this. Would it be all right if I just share my story with you? Everyone loves to hear a story. Now, I want to be clear that when we share our story about how we became a Christian, that is not the same as sharing the gospel. Although you certainly can share the gospel in your story, can't you? But we ought to share our story, and then maybe the Lord would lead us to really just share the truth of our sin of how Jesus came to die for that sin and died on the cross and, and rose from the dead. If we would repent of our sins and place our faith in him, we can be saved. So one step at a time, Jesus wants to use you and be willing to share your story. Well, let me read the last part here of this story of his. Verse 17 says, When I had returned to Jerusalem, now you remember after his conversion, according to Galatians 1, 17 and 18, he actually went to Arabia for three years. That was like his seminary experience. 
As I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. Verse 21. And when he said to me, when Jesus said to me, Go, for I will send you far away with the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. What was the word that it all stopped? It was the word Gentiles, wasn't it? Up until that point, they were tracking with him. But now they said, Away with such a fellow from the earth. He should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. You see, the Gentiles, according to the Jewish mind, were good for one thing, and that was kindling. Kindling for the fires of hell to make sure that hell remained hot by burning Gentiles. And the thought that these dirty, rotten Gentiles could be included in God's saving plan was a foreign thought. It was an offensive thought to these Jews. So they, they form another mob and a riot and they pull Paul out. And here you have the chief of police saying, hey, well, let's flog this guy. He has caused a riot. And then we have a clever question being posed by Paul. You see it there in verse 25. When they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, hey, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Now this is a question that is more like a statement, isn't it? We've got one of our boys in our family that is an absolute master at this. We've taught our boys, listen, if you have a problem with one of your brothers, then what you need to do is go to them and try to work that out before you come to us. And if you see that they're about ready to get into trouble, you go to them rather than telling us first. You go to them and say, hey, what you're doing is wrong. Well, this clever little boy has found a little loophole in our instructions. And so he would come up to mom or dad and he'd say, hey, um, is it okay if Joshua's on the roof right now? <laughs> or, hey, uh, is it okay if Elijah's sneaking some ice cream right now? I'm, I'm, I'm just curious. <laughs> or, hey, I couldn't help but notice that uh, Abe's on his iPad. Is it okay if Abe's on his iPad right now? And, and we've kind of read between the lines that what he is doing is he's actually making a statement in the form of a question. And it just so happens that his middle name is Paul. So I don't know if that has anything to do with it or not. But, but the, this is what Paul is doing. He's saying, hey, I'm just curious. Is it lawful for you to flog a man who was a Roman citizen? And he knew that. There were Roman citizens were exempt from such beatings. We could skip down a little bit later and we would find out that Roman citizens, it was not lawful for them to, to bind them if there wasn't a specific charge. In fact, the chief of police is going to get a little scared here. Look with me at verse 29. 
So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Oh, no. He had bound him, he was a Roman citizen, and he had never been charged. So first thing I wanted to to identify here is Jesus' story, that we have a testimony, and we have the privilege of sharing it. So now what do we do? Verse 30 says, On the next day, so the next day, the chief of police, the tribune, still does not have a reason to hold him. So he's trying to find a specific charge to keep Paul. So he has another plan. How about I'll bring him before the Sanhedrin. This is the Jewish Supreme Court. And I'll allow them to to listen to his story. And then they will charge him. So we read in chapter 23, verse 1, that Paul goes. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now, would you agree with me that that's kind of a strange way to greet a bunch of judges by calling them brothers? You would think something like, Your Honor, Your Honors. Why would he have identified brothers? Well, if you've been following us through the book of Acts, then you know that it's very possible that at one time he was a member of the Sanhedrin himself. And then when he looked up to this group of 20 different or 70 different judges, he could say, I know a lot of you guys. I know your face. I know your name. In fact, I was right beside you at one moment. So he identifies them as brothers about 20 years ago. And when he said to them that he has lived my life before God and all good conscience up to this day, there is a swift response. Verse 2 says, And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. The thought that this guy, in their mind, that had caused these riots, could say that I have a clear conscience. It's as if the bright light of the morning sun has shined in my, my window And every time I saw a smudge of sin, I have addressed it. And I stand before you with a clear conscience. The thought of that rubbed the high priest the wrong way. And he ordered that he'd be smacked. Now this Ananias, history would tell us that he was a scoundrel himself. He was corrupt. We read in places in history that he was take the tithes that were devoted to the priest and he would take them for himself that he was more in allegiance with the Roman government than doing what was right. In fact, in the year 66 A.D., when there was a revolt in the city of Jerusalem, it was the Jews who killed this high priest and not the Romans. And then we read in verse 3, Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall, Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was a high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So Paul calls this high priest a hypocrite. And so when we read the Scriptures... And when Jesus says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, 
turn to him the other also. Would we say that that's kind of the attitude that Paul had? Or when Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, would we say that that's the attitude that Paul had? We have a word for this in our church. It's the word sin. And so here's our hero, Apostle Paul, in a moment of anger and frustration where he actually sins and, and reviles against, against the high priest. And he said, man, I shouldn't have done that because the Bible says you should not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Then verse 6 tells us, so as he's about ready to speak to this, or lay out his case to the Sanhedrin, we read, now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, he cried out. In this group, they're made up of two people, the Pharisees. These were the people that were the conservatives. They believed every word of the Old Testament was God's word. They were legalists, yes. They were respected by the citizens of their area. They controlled the synagogue. Then there was a second group called the Sadducees. They did only believe in the first five books of the Old Testament. Unlike the Pharisees, they did not believe in the supernatural. They did not believe in angels, nor did they believe in life after death, the resurrection. So there's a rivalry there. And when Paul perceives this, listen to what he says. Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on the trial. He says, you know what this is all about? This is about doctrine. That's the second point of our outline today is doctrine divides. He is saying to the Sanhedrin, this member of 70 different men, he's saying, I'm here out of doctrine, the doctrine of the resurrection. I believe that Jesus was raised to life, and I also believe that we will have an afterlife. So now you had the Pharisees arguing with the Sadducees, and guess what happens again? Another riot forms. Let me just pause here and think about doctrine for a moment. Doctrine does divide, doesn't it? And it seems to me that we're, we're scared of that. It seems to me that when we get into a Bible study, there are times where we don't want to say something that, that might take a stand on a particular teaching of the Bible. In, in the name of love and unity and peace and all that stuff, we're, we're afraid that we might offend or hurt someone's feelings. But there are some doctrines that are worth dividing over. Just think in history with me. In the early 1900s, as, as evolution was gaining traction, something called biblical criticism was also becoming more and more pervasive where people would call into question the inerrancy of Scripture as well as spiritual apathy. What took place was some conservative Christians got together and they said, we, we need to determine some absolute essentials of the faith that are non-negotiable for us. They called them fundamentals. And they would call these people what? Fundamentalists. So let me just give you five here of things that we, that we really can't move away from. I've called them five essential doctrines worth dividing over. Now I'm not suggesting that we ought to be militant about this or self-righteous about this, but we, but we need to, to dig in on these five things. The first is inspiration of Scripture. I don't know if you looked up here today and you saw anything new. 
<laughs> Hopefully you did. If you're a guest today, this is the, our first Sunday with a, with a new pulpit. Uh, we had a pulpit here for a long, long time, and um, it, it got repurposed and made into some really cool piece of furniture for our, our previous pastor, Pastor Jim. And so this is the, the first Sunday of a replacement of this. And do you know the function of this, this wonderful piece of furniture? It's really to hold this Bible, right? That, that is why it exists. It's a place of reverence for us to say, what does God's Word have to say to us? This is fundamental for us. There's, we just cannot backpedal from this at all, that God's Word is authoritative. It is inspired. And so we see here in, in the story of, of Paul that when he would take a stand, that he would be smeared. There would be lies that were spread about him. Paul, you are against Jews. You are against the law. You are against the temple. And we ought not to be surprised that when we take a stand on the Word of God, that we too will be smeared, called bigots, called hate-filled hate people or intolerant on the wrong side of history. I'll give you a second one. It's the virgin birth of Jesus. That is a non-negotiable for us. Jesus was sinless. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. A third non-negotiable for us is a substitutionary atonement of Christ. That means we are made right with God by Jesus dying in our place and then being raised to life three days later. A few years ago, as I was out in our community, I couldn't help but notice all those Somalian refugees. And, and I, a thought occurred to me, I wonder if anyone is ministering to them. I wonder if anyone is reaching out to them. So we had a police officer in our church, and, and I reached out to him, and I said, hey, do you know if anyone's reaching them? Here, here's, a, here's a contact number. So he gave it to me, and I, I met a few different times, saying, I would love to come alongside. If there's a way for us to help you transition here in the Green Bay community, we would love to do that. I'm a part of a church, and, and maybe we can help you. And, and, and as we talked, they were so friendly, and they said, you know, we are Muslim. We understand that you are Christian, and we believe in Jesus, and you believe in Jesus. We believe the same thing. And I said, honestly, I think it's really important for us to be truthful here. And, and I, I don't think we do believe the same thing. And so we believe that Jesus is God, that Jesus came and he came to die for our sins and he rose from the dead and our only hope of eternal life is a gift that he has given to us. And you know what happened? Doctrine divides. And, and they were not willing, and for whatever reason, maybe it was that, but we're not willing to enter into a relationship because doctrine divides. I'll give you a fourth one, and it's the, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. This is non-negotiable for us. It's what they were arguing about there. Paul said, I'll tell you what this is about. This is about the resurrection. And so a, a, a riot ensued. And then the a, a fifth one is just something we have to agree on, and that is a, a physical return of Jesus. He will come back. Now, there are other items you say, no, I think we would include this. I think we would all agree that there are certain ones that we can have a little flexibility on, style of music, translations of the Bible. There might be debate on homeschool, Christian school, or public school, but these things here we have to have agreement on. And so when we see we're in this together, 
we're going to stand together. We need to be unified in this. And we see these commercials. We see these yard signs. And we see this, these anthems hoisted up for us. So certainly we can agree in principle with that. But just understand that for many, it's coming with a different doctrine. I'll give you an example. Um, I am certainly all for um, racial reconciliation. I'm all for going back to the Bible and loving man as God intended, made in the image of God. But when we think of Black Lives Matter, just a quote from their own belief statement says, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure required by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. Now, I would agree in principle that all lives matter, including African-Americans' lives matter. But when we look at the belief statement here that says we are trying to disrupt the nuclear family, we would say that is not supported by Scripture. We are for the nuclear family of dads and moms and children in the home. We want to support that. We want to support that. We could still support the, the sanctity of life and the human life but our doctrine will separate us. I'll give you a third statement that I think that comes from this passage, and it's just this two words, take courage. It's been a rough week for Paul. One riot after another. Look with me at verse 11 of Acts 23. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now, there were other instances where Jesus would visit Paul. He had visited him. We saw that in Acts 9 in a light. Why are you persecuting me? In Acts 18, there was a vision where he said, do not be afraid for I have many in this city who are my people. In Acts 20, Paul fell into a trance and and Jesus spoke to him and said, make haste and get out of Jerusalem. But here in verse 11, It says here, the Lord stood by him. In a moment of crisis, the Lord stood by him and said these words, take courage. I don't know about you when you read the Bible, but there are times where I read the scriptures as I'm scanning one line after another. I'll come across a few words and it's as if there are lights just shining. It's as if this is a word for you today. And that, that was for me this week. As I was reading this story and I thought of these words, take courage, I'm like, wow, thank you, Lord. That, that is a wonderful uh, a truth that I need to hear today. And it could be for you. As you think about this season that you've been going through, this, this week that you've endured, perhaps this is God's word for you. Take courage. There are other places in the New Testament where Jesus would offer these words. There was a time in Matthew 9, verse 2, where a paralyzed man was brought to him, and he said, take courage, my son, your sins are forgiven. In Matthew 9, 22, a woman that had suffered a discharge of blood for 12 years was reached out, and, and he said to her, take courage, daughter, your faith has made you well. In John 14, verse 27, there was a great storm, wind blowing into the boat, And as the disciples looked out, they thought they saw a ghost walking on the water. 
And then we see here, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. And as Jesus is about ready to leave his disciples in John 16, verse 33, he said, in this world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. It's as if Jesus only brings this phrase out when people are in a moment of crisis. Be of good cheer. Jesus meets us in our crisis. He he will say here, take courage for you, for for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must testify also in Rome. You know, there are times where we can share our story, we can share truth, and it's as if no one responds. And that was true of the last two stories. But despite that, Jesus is saying to him, you have testified to the facts about me. Take courage. And he is now saying, don't worry about this. I'm going to make sure that you get to Rome. And from that moment forward, we can say that Paul is invincible until he carries out God's plan. And so let me just give you a few stories of providence. I won't read all of them, but in verses 12 and following, what's going to happen is there's going to be about 40 different men that say, here's a plan. Let's let's kill Paul. The next day, let's ask for Paul to be brought back before the Sanhedrin. And as he is, let us kill him. In fact, let's get some men together and let's enter into a promise that we will not eat until he is killed. And as the story is being told, we find out that Paul has a sister. Look with me at verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So we went and entered the barracks and told Paul. We didn't know Paul had a sister. We didn't know he had a nephew. And I'm not sure how the nephew worked his way into the jail, but he is able to to communicate this to Paul. And Paul says, why don't you go tell the chief of police? The chief of police says, okay, it sounds like they're going to kill him. So let's talk about the fourth thing in our message today, and that's God's protection. And so we read here in verse 23 of Acts 23, the The chief of police, the tribune, called the two of the centurions and said, Get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. In other words, let's get him out of town because they're about ready to kill him. So if you're doing the math, let's surround him by 470 soldiers. It's a 65-mile journey from Jerusalem to Caesarea. So why don't you just ride a horse, Paul, rather than ride it? I don't know what it was like. It was about 9 o'clock in the evening. And as Paul is exiting the town, he is going to leave about 40 men with very hungry stomachs. So we'll pick it up there next. As Paul is going to be brought to Caesarea, and it's there where he's going to have an opportunity to stand trial before Governor Felix. And really, from this moment to the end of the book of Acts, Paul is a prisoner. And we might say, hey, isn't this the same jail cell in Acts 12 where Peter was liberated by God? Why wasn't Paul? God's plan for each of us is a little different, isn't it? For Paul, he wanted to teach endurance. And he says, i got some things for you to do, so you just remain as you are. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. 
And then Charles Spurgeon said, let us trust in God and be very courageous for the gospel and the Lord himself will screen us from all harm. As we think about this passage today, let me offer a few applications. One, and I want to keep this at the top of the list, if you are a Christian, why don't we follow Paul's example this week and share our story with someone? It might be in a short form, an intermediate form, or a long form. Would you, would you take some time this week as your homework to say, I want to share my story with you about how I became a Christian. And this is how I like to do it. You get into a conversation. You ask them a, a little bit about their life and, and just say, could, could I just share with you my story and do that? Can we all do that? And I would encourage you, once you've done that, send me a text. Send me an email. Say, hey, I did that, and this is what it went, this is what it went like. The second thing I would ask those of you, maybe you're not a Christian. What would keep you from becoming a Christian even today? To turn from your sins, to place your faith in Jesus. And then I would ask, what's the next step? What is your next step? Is it to be baptized? Is your next step to, to have a hard conversation? Is it to say, you know, I really, I need to go back. I, I've neglected the Bible. My next step is just to get back in the Scriptures. Is, it, is the next step to, to confess a sin to someone? And then as we, as we think about this passage, perhaps God's word to you is just take courage. Yeah, it's been a rough week. It's been a rough month. But don't worry. I've got this. I'm going to see you through this. And then just to be reminded of God's protection. We get a chance to be involved in ministry, not just me, but all Christians in this room. And let us, let us engage in that. Let us participate in that. Would you join me in prayer? Fathers, we reflect on this passage today. We see a Paul that is a human in fact, we even get to see him sin today. We see the realness, the humanness of the Scriptures. And as, as we think about his story, we realize that for many in this room, we have a story. We have the privilege of, of sharing what you are doing and what you have done in our life. Oh, please, grant us the opportunity And may we run into it today or this week that we could share how you have changed our life and are continuing to change our life. We will think of what our life was like before we were a Christian, how we became a Christian, and what our life is like after we became a Christian. Lord, if there's there's something in our life, the next step that you've revealed to us and we haven't followed along and, and obeyed that yet, Help us to do that even today. And thank you for the, thank you for the word of say, be of good cheer. Take courage. In our moment of crisis, you meet us there. In Jesus' name, amen.